Chapter 5. Herbals, Their Origin and Evolution. A chapter in the history of botany. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Herbals, Their Origin and Evolution. A chapter in the history of botany. By Agnes Arbor. Chapter 5. The Evolution of the Art of Plant Description Probably one of the chief objects which the early herbalists had in view in writing their books was to enable the reader to identify various medicinal plants. Nevertheless, until well into the 16th century, their drawings were so conventional, and their descriptions left so much to be desired, that it must have been an almost impossible task to arrive at the names of plants by their aid alone. The idea which suggests itself is that a knowledge of the actual plant was, in practice, transmitted by word of mouth, and that the herbals were only used as reference books to ascertain the reputed qualities of herbs, with whose appearance the reader was already quite familiar. If this supposition is correct, it perhaps accounts for the very primitive state in which the art of plant description remained during the earlier period of the botanical renaissance. When we turn to the Aristotelian school, we find that the writings of Theophrastus include certain plant descriptions, which, although they seem somewhat rudimentary when judged by modern standards, are greatly in advance of those contained in the first printed herbals. The medieval philosopher Albertus Magnus, who, as we have already pointed out, was a follower of Aristotle and Theophrastus, also showed marked originality in his description of flowers, and drew attention to a number of points which appear to have escaped the notice of many more recent writers. For instance, in describing the flower of the Borage, he distinguished the green calyx, the corolla with its ligular outgrowths, the five stamens and the central pistil, though naturally he failed to understand the function of the latter organs. He observed that in the lily the calyx was absent, but that the petals themselves showed transitions from green to white. He noticed the early fall of the calyx in the poppy and its persistence until the ripening of the fruit in the rose. On the subject of floral astivation, his observations were surprisingly advanced. He pointed out that the successive whorls of sepals and petals alternated with one another and concluded that this was a device for the better protection of the flower. Albertus further classified the various forms of flower under three types. 1. Bird form, e.g. aquilegia, viola, and lamium. 2. Pyramid and bell form. 3. Star form. When we leave the early Aristotelian botanists and turn to those who studied the subject primarily from the medical point of view, we find a great falling off in the power of description. The accounts of the plants in the Materia Medica of Dioscorides, for example, are so brief and meager that only those with the most marked characteristics can be identified with certainty. The herbarium of Apuleius Platonicus, the earliest work to which the term herbal is generally applied, scarcely makes any attempt 
at describing the plants to which it refers. Such a paragraph as the following gives an account of a plant which, compared with most of the other descriptions in the herbal, may fairly be called precise and full. Quote, this wart, which is named radiolus, by another name, everfern, is like fern, and it is produced in stony places and in old house steads, and it has on each leaf two rows of fair spots, and they shine like gold. End quote. The group of late 15th century herbals, which we discussed in chapter 2, the Latin and German herbarius and the Hortus Sanitatus, are alike in giving very brief and inadequate accounts of the characters of the plants enumerated, although their descriptions often have a certain naive charm. It is scarcely worthwhile to give actual examples of their methods. It will perhaps suffice to quote a few specimens from the English Great Herbal, which is a work of much the same class. The wood sorrel is dealt with as follows, quote, This herb groweth in three places, and specially in hedges, woods, and under walls, sides, and hath leaves like leaved grass, and hath a sour smell as sorrel, and hath a yellow flower. As another example, we may cite the chicory, which is described as having, quote, croaked and writhen stalks, and the flower is of a color of the sky, end quote. Of the water lilies, we receive a still more generalized account. Quote, Nenufar is an herb that groweth in water, and hath large leaves, and hath a flower in manner of a rose. The root thereof is called trumien, and is very big. It is of two manners, one is white, and another yellow. Occasionally we meet with a hint of more detailed observation. For instance, the colored central flower in the umbel of the carrot is mentioned, though in terms that sound somewhat strange to the modern botanist. We read that it, quote, hath a large flower, and in the middle thereof a little reed prick, end quote. It is somewhat remarkable that Banks's herbal, though originally published a year earlier than the first edition of The Great Herbal, shows a slight but distinct superiority in the matter of description. See page 38. Perhaps this is to be connected with the fact that Banks's herbal is without illustrations. But even if we allow that the descriptions in Banks's herbal occasionally seize on salient features, it must be admitted that they still leave a great deal to the imagination. As two typical examples, which are perhaps as good as any in the book, we may take those of Tutsun and of Shepherd's Purse. Of the first, the herbalist writes, quote, This herb hath leaves some del reed like unto ye leaves of orange, and this herb hath sinews on his leaves as hath plantain, and it hath yellow flowers, and beareth black berries, and it groweth in dry woods. Of Shepherd's Purse, he says, quote, This herb hath a small stalk, and full of branches, and ragged leaves, and a white flower. The cods thereof be like a purse, end quote. The Herbarium Vive Aeconis of Otto Brunfels, 1530, was the first herbal illustrated with drawings, which are throughout both beautiful and true to nature. The descriptions, on the other hand, are quite unworthy of the figures, 
being mostly borrowed from earlier writers. The wonderful excellence of the woodblocks with which the German fathers of botany enriched their books was, in our sense, an actual hindrance to the development of the art of plant description. Since the pencil of the draftsman could represent every subtlety in the characteristic form of a plant, the botanist might well be excused for thinking that to take the trouble to set beside the drawing a precise verbal description of the plant in question was a work of supererogation. However, in another sense, the draftsman indirectly helped the cause of scientific accuracy in what, for want of a better expression, may be called word-painting. There is no doubt that constant critical examination of the artist's work must have tended to educate the eye of the botanist who supervised his efforts, and to increase his perception of delicate shades of difference or similarity of form, which he might never have noticed or attempted to express in words, if the draftsman had not, as it were, lent him his trained eyesight. The next great worker, Hieronymus Bach, differs from Brunfels in the comparative unimportance of his contributions to plant illustration and the relatively great value of his text. His descriptions of flowers and fruits are excellent, and the way in which he indicates the general habit is often masterly. As an example, we may quote his description of mistletoe plants, which may be translated as follows, quote, They grow almost in the shape of a cluster, with many forks and articulations. The whole plant is light green, the leaves are fleshy, plump, and thick, larger than those of the box. They flower in the beginning of spring. The flowers are, however, very small and yellow in color. From them develop, towards autumn, small, round, white berries, very like those on the wild gooseberry. These berries are full inside of white, tough lime, yet each berry has its small black grain, as if it were the seed, which, however, does not grow when sown, for, as I have said above, the mistletoe only originates and develops on trees. In winter, mistel thrushes seek their food from the mistletoe, but in summer they are caught with it, for bird lime is commonly made from its bark. Thus the mistletoes are both beneficial and harmful to birds. In De Historia Stirpium, the great Latin work of Leonard Fuchs, the plant descriptions are brief and of little importance, being frequently taken word for word from previous writers. This book, however, is notable in possessing a full glossary of the technical terms used, which is of importance as being the first contribution of the kind to botanical literature. We may translate two examples at random to show the style of Fuchs's definitions. Quote, Stamens are the points, apices, that shoot forth in the middle of the flower cup, calyx, so-called because they spring out like threads from the inmost bosom of the flower. Pappus, both to the Greeks and to the Latins, is the fluff which falls from flowers or fruits. So also certain woolly hairs which remain on certain plants when they lose their flowers and afterwards disappear into the air are papi, as happens in Senecio, Sancus, and several others. In the German edition of Fuchs's Herbal, the descriptions are remarkably good for their time, being more methodical than those of Bach, though sometimes less lively and picturesque. As an instance of his manner, we may cite his account of the butterbur, of which his woodcut is shown in text figure 58. 
Quote, the flower of butter burr, he writes, is the first to appear before the plant or leaves. The flower is cluster-shaped with many small, pale, pinkish flowerets, and is like a fine bunch of vine flowers in full bloom to look at. This large cluster-shaped flower has a hollow stalk, at times a span high. It withers and decays without fruit together with the stalk. Then the round, gray, ash-colored leaves appear, which are at first like colt's foot, but afterwards become so large that one leaf will cover a small round table. They are light green on one side and whitish or gray on the other. Each leaf has its own brown, hairy, and hollow stem, on which it sits like a wide hat or a mushroom turned over. The root grows very thick, is white and porous inside, and has a strong, bitter taste. End quote. Our English herbalist, William Turner, is often fresh and effective in his descriptions. He compares the daughter, Cuscuta, to, quote, a great red harp string, end quote, and the seed vessels of shepherd's purse to a, quote, boy's satchel or little bag, end quote. Of the dead nettle, he says, quote, lamium hath leaves like unto a nettle, but less indented about and whiter. The downy things that are in it like prickles bite not, yet stalk is four square, the flowers are white, and have a strong savor, and are very like unto little coals, or hoods, that stand over bare heads. The seed is black, and groweth about the stalk, certain places going between, as we see in Whorehound. The three great botanists of the Low Countries, Dodoens, de l'Ecluse, and de l'Aubel, were so closely associated that it is hardly necessary to consider their style of plant description individually. Henry Light's well-known herbal of 1578 was a translation of the Histoire des Plantes, which is itself a version by de l'Ecluse of the Dutch herbal of Dodoens. We may thus fairly illustrate the style of plant description of this school by a quotation from Light, since it has the advantage of retaining the 16th century flavor, which is so easily lost in a modern translation. As a typical example, we may take a paragraph about the stork's bill, erodium. It will be noticed that it does not represent any great advance upon Fuchs's work. Quote, the kind of geranium or stork's bill, his leaves are cut and jagged in many pieces, like to crowfoot, his stalks be slender and parted into sundry branches, upon which groweth small flowers somewhat like roses, or the flowers of mallows, of a light murrey or red color. After them cometh little round heads with small long bills like natals, or like the beaks of cranes and herons, wherein the seed is contained. The root is thick, round, short, and knobby, with certain small strings hanging by it. In his Pemptades of 1583, Dodoens gave a glossary of botanical terms. His definitions suffer, however, from vagueness and are not calculated greatly to advance the accurate description of plants. As an example, we may take his account of the flower, which may be translated as follows. Quote, the flower we call the joy of trees and plants. It is the hope of fruits to come, for every growing thing, according to its nature, produces offspring and fruit after the flower. But flowers have their own special parts. End quote. 
The description from the pen of De Lecluse are characterized by a greater fullness and closer attention to flower structure than those of his predecessors. The plant which he calls sedum, or semper vivum magus, of which his woodcut is reproduced in text figure 59, is described as being, quote, a shrub rather than an herb. Occasionally it reaches the height of two cubits, three feet, and is as thick as the human arm, with a quantity of twigs as thick as a man's thumb. These spread out into numerous rays of the thickness of a finger. The ends of these terminate in a kind of circle, which is formed by numerous leaves pressing inwards altogether and overlapping, just as in sedum vulgare magis. These leaves, however, are fat and full of juice, and shaped like a tongue, and slightly serrated round the edge, with a somewhat astringent flavor. The whole shrub is coated with a thick, fleshy, sappy bark. The outer membrane inclines to a dark color, and is speckled, as in Tithalamus caracea. These speckles are simply the remains of leaves which have fallen off. Meanwhile, a thick pedicel, covered with leaves, springs out from the top of the larger branches, and bears, so to speak, a thyrsus of many yellow flowers, scattered about like stars, pleasant to behold. And when the flowers begin to ripen, and are running to seed, the seed is very small, the pedicel grows slender, but the plant is an evergreen. In Gerard's Herbal of 1597, the descriptions are seldom sufficiently original to be of much interest. We may quote, however, his account of the potato flower, text figure 60, then so great a novelty that in his portrait, plate 12, he is represented holding a spray of it in his hand. It has, he says, quote, very fair and pleasant flowers made of one entire whole leaf, which is folded or plated in such strange sort that it seemeth to be a flower made of six sundry small leaves, which cannot be easily perceived, except the same be pulled open. The color whereof it is hard to express. The whole flower is of a light purple color, stripped down the middle of every fold or welt with a light show of yellowness, as though purple and yellow were mixed together. In the middle of the flower thrusteth forth a thick fat pointil, yellow as gold, with a small sharp green prick or point in the midst thereof. The plant descriptions by Valerius Cordus, which were published after his death, are among the best produced in the 16th century, but they are too lengthy for quotation here. So far as the period with which we deal in this book is concerned, the zenith of plant description may be said to be reached in the Prodromos of Gaspar Boin, 1620, in which a high level of terseness and accuracy is attained. As an example, we may translate his description of Beta Cretica Semine Aculeato, of which his drawing is reproduced in text figure 62. Quote, From a short tapering root, by no means fibrous, spring several stalks about 18 inches long. They straggle over the ground and are cylindrical in shape and furrowed, becoming gradually white near the root, with a slight coating of down, and spreading out into little sprays. The plant has but few leaves, similar to those of Beta nigra, except that they are smaller and supplied with long petioles. The flowers are small and of a greenish-yellow. 
the fruits one can see growing in large numbers close by the root, and from that point they spread along the stalk at almost every leaf. They are rough and tubercled, and separate into three reflexed points. In their cavity, one grain of the shape of an Adonis seed is contained. It is slightly rounded and ends in a point, and is covered with a double layer of reddish membrane, the inner one enclosing a white, farinaceous core. Any great advance on Boant's descriptions could hardly be expected during the period which we are discussing, since it closed before the nature of the essential parts of the flower was really understood. It was not until 1682 that the fact that the stamens are male organs was pointed out in print by Nehemiah Grew, though he himself attributed this discovery to Sir Thomas Millington, a botanist otherwise unknown. Gerard's account of the stamens and stigma of the potato as a, quote, pointel, yellow as gold, with a small sharp green prick or point in the middest thereof, end quote, vague as it seems to the 20th century botanist, is by no means to be despised when we remember that the writer was handicapped by complete ignorance of the function of the structures which he saw before him. A further hindrance to improvement in plant description was the lack of a methodical terminology. As we have already shown, both Fuchs and Dodoens attempted glossaries of botanical terms, but these do not seem to have become an integral part of the science. It is a common complaint among non-botanists at the present day that the subject has become incomprehensible to the layman, owing to the excessive use of technical words. There is no doubt some truth in this statement, but on the other hand, a study of the writings of the earlier botanists makes it clear that a description of a plant couched in ordinary language, in which the botanical meaning of the terms employed has been subjected to no rigid definition, often breaks down completely on all critical points. It is to Joachim Young and to Linnaeus that we owe the foundations of an accurate terminology, now at the disposal of the botanist when he sets out to describe a new plant. The published work of these two writers belongs, however, to the late 17th and 18th century, and is thus outside the scope of the present volume. End of chapter 5